as we peruse all things Potter. Hello and welcome to Wizard Studies. I'm Audrey. And I'm Katie. And today we are talking about the character that pretty much everyone hates, undisputedly, (laughs) Dolores Umbridge. Yep. But before I get started... (laughs) I just wanted to remind everybody to send us questions that you have about Harry Potter and the Wizarding World in general. Questions that you would want to ask JK, you can just ask us instead. We'll do some research on them, try and answer them to the best of our abilities. And also, if you send in a question, we you will be entered to win a giveaway. So, fun stuff. So, as Audrey mentioned, we're going to be talking about Dolores Umbridge. And I'm going to start out talking about her name, Dolores Umbridge. Her her middle name is Jane. Her name is Dolores Jane Umbridge. (laughs) So JK has a writing on Pottermore about her name and kind of where it comes from and why she chose it. So I'm just going to read her little quote about that. Umbridge's names were carefully chosen. Dolores means sorrow, something she undoubtedly inflicts on all around her. Umbridge is a play on umbrage from the British expression to take umbrage, meaning offense. Dolores is offended by any challenge to her limited worldview I felt her surname conveyed the pettiness and rigidity of her character. It is harder to explain Jane. It simply felt rather smug and neat between her two other names. And I do believe that Hermione's middle name was uh, supposed to be Jane until J.K. Rowling picked the name for Dolores Umbridge, and she didn't want Hermione and Umbridge to share a middle name, and so Hermione's middle name was changed to Jean. So much better. (laughs) <laughs> Hermione Jane Granger? Like, what? Hermione Jane. Yeah, I feel like that's just harder to say for some reason. Like, Hermione Jane. Like, Hermione Jane. Like, it flows better. <laughs> Alright, so Umbridge's birthday is the 26th of August, and we don't have a year on that. Her wand is made out of birch wood and dragon heartstring and is 8 inches long. And interestingly enough, birch is not a wandwood that's listed on Pottermore, so we can't break down um, how she fits this wandwood because we don't have any writing about this. And, like, the only reason I can think of to explain why birch isn't listed on there is it's not a wandwood that we can get on Pottermore because JK doesn't want people to share a wandwood with Umbridge. She doesn't want them to be like, oh, man, that sucks. I have to share a (laughs) wandwood with Umbridge. (laughs) So. Yeah, the, I was like just speculating and I didn't do any research on the meaning of birch wood, but I was thinking about like birch trees are like white on the outside and dark wood on the inside. Like the bark is white. And so like maybe it's like this like nice like persona that she puts on with the pink and the kittens and the sweet voice. And then like the inside, she's like a terrible person. Yep. <laughs> And then, Pretty her, much. <laughs> and then her house is Slytherin, um, which I think is pretty spot on. And then it's just like funny. I've seen like speculation that um, since we don't have a birth year for her, we don't know when she was at Hogwarts, but it's very likely that she could have overlapped at Hogwarts with bo- both Bellatrix and Rita Skeeter. And we don't know for sure that Rita was in Slytherin, but 
that would be my placement of a house for her. And it's just kind of funny, like, imagining... If you imagine, like, the three of them, like, sharing a dormitory. Like, Bellatrix, Rita, and Dolores Umbridge. Can you, like... I just can't even imagine that. Can you imagine the hijinks that those three would get up to? They would all hate each other. I feel like they'd all, like, literally, like, I don't, Bellatrix wouldn't put up with Dolores or Rita. Like, Dolores wouldn't put up with Rita or Bellatrix. Rita would probably just want the gossip on the other two. Like, I don't think there would even be, like, any sort of, like, bonds that were formed to, like, team up against the other one. Like, I think they would all just be, like, out for each other's throats all the time. I could see them teaming up to make, like, when they need each other, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, when it's convenient. Like, yeah, yeah. Oh, like, you could help me out, like, with this thing, and we have a shared goal in this, so, like, let's work together for now. You know what I mean? Yeah. I could see that happening. Um, Her Patronus is a cat, and we'll, I guess, we talk about cats a little bit later. Yeah, I'm going to talk about it a little bit later. Yeah, and we see this... We see her Patronus in Deathly Hallows. I almost said part two. (laughs) (laughs) Well, technically, that's when we do physically see it in the movie. Um, But she's using her Patronus when she is interrogating Muggleborns. Actually, I feel like this is part one. It's not even part part two. (laughs) (laughs) Never mind forget about that but don't don't forget about what i was saying about she was using her patronus <laughs> to protect herself from the dementors while she let everybody else um despair and sit in misery while the dementors were just looming over them in the interrogation rooms as though they didn't feel bad enough already all right <laughs> um her parents are orford umbridge who is a wizard and ellen cracknell who is a muggle she would later go on to lie and say she was a pure blood, even though she was a half blood. Um, and she secretly despised both of her parents. I don't know how secret it was by the end, but growing up, I think it was secret. Uh, and her father, she despised him because he lacked ambition. Um, he worked in the magical maintenance department. And her mother, she despised for her, quote, flightiness, untidiness, and muggle lineage. And. Dolores and her father blamed Ellen, um, Dolores' mother, for her brother being a squib. And so when Dolores was 15, the family pretty much split down the middle. Um, Ellen took her son and returned to the muggle world, and Dolores and Orford remained in the wizarding community. Her skills with Sean Podmore include that her punishment quote was of her own invention. So like, wow, great witch, impressive. In defense of Dolores, <laughs> <laughs> we read a MuggleNet article about how, in defense of her, so, you know, in defense yeah. of her, she's a strong woman who invents her own punishment. She dominates an all-male, or a mostly male <laughs> profession. She rises to the top. Such a strong female character. Wow. Yeah. I want to be like Dolores Umbridge when I grow up. <laughs> please pick up on the sarcasm here. <laughs> yeah we might like do this bit throughout the episode and i just want to be clear that we are joking <laughs> so her hobbies include collecting the frolicsome feline ornamental plate range adding flounces and to fabric and frills to stationary objects and inventing instruments of torture so well-rounded look at that wow So her first mention is in the Order of the Phoenix, and this 
I have a pretty long excerpt actually because there's just some like great description of her in this section. I will say that she's mentioned twice before this so technically this is like her third mention but the other two aren't like substantive (laughs) (laughs) the the other two mentions are like one-off sentences so like the first one is it takes place when harry is at his trial for producing the patronus charm at the ministry in the order of the phoenix and she's like listed as one of the people being there like it's just her name and then later it's like during the trial when dumbledore is speaking there's like a line that says the woman to the right of fudge shifted or something in response to one of dumbledore's very tolerable very loving beliefs i assume so the third time the third mention is this and let me just read it for you it's kind of long i apologize In the complete silence that greeted those words, the witch to the right of Fudge leaned forward so that Harry saw her for the first time. He thought she looked just like a large pale toad. She was rather squat with a broad, flabby face, as little neck as Uncle Vernon, and a very wide, slack mouth. Her eyes were large, round, and slightly bulging. Even the little black velvet bow perched on top of her short curly hair put him in mind of a large fly she was about to catch on a long sticky tongue the chair recognizes dolores jane umbridge senior undersecretary to the minister said fudge the witch spoke in a fluttery girlish high-pitched voice that took harry aback he had been expecting a croak i'm sure i must have misunderstood you professor dumbledore she said with a simper that left her big round eyes as cold as ever so silly of me but it sounded for a teeny moment as though you were suggesting that the ministry of magic had ordered ordered an attack on this boy so i just i love the imagery that jk rowling uses to describe her like i don't really know if i can fully picture what jk rowling is describing but like it's so rich in description Mm -hmm. you know like it's so over exaggerated that I like don't even really know what a person that looks like a toad looks like right like Like, if she looks like that much like a toad (laughs) yeah like I don't know what that's supposed to end up looking like (laughs) kind of like in the movie I think they did a pretty good job (laughs) oh yeah the woman who plays Umbridge in the movies, I believe her name is, like, Imelda Stanton, and people, like, after she got the role or before she got the role, I'm not sure when this took place, but people were like, oh my god, you're perfect for Umbridge, and she's like, thanks, I look like a toad, awesome, <laughs> love that for me. <laughs> oh, but, god. to be fair, I think she was the perfect Umbridge in the movie, like, so good. Yeah. Yeah, no, she was really good. Yeah. Her little, like, cough was perfect. Oh, so good. Like, just her voice Mm -hmm. in general was, like, oh, that's so good. And also in the movies, um, I remember, like, hearing this somewhere, probably on, like, the special features for the Half-Blood Prince, but, like, her costume slowly... Oh, yeah, sorry. Order of the Phoenix. Her costume slowly got darker and darker shades of pink as the movie went on as, like, she became, like, more evil in the eye of the viewer thought that was pretty cool pretty cool pretty cool so umbridge's myers-briggs personality type um she's been assigned estj which is the executive by like multiple different websites and articles i just googled it and like it was pretty consistent everybody thought this 
And I really, really like this personality type for her. I think it's pretty much spot on. The interesting thing, which I'll talk about a little bit more later, is that this type has been assigned to McGonagall as well, which is really interesting because they butt heads so much. Um, and then I have a section later about uh, their relationship. So I just want to tell you that now, because while I'm reading these descriptions, see if you can kind of see both McGonagall and Umbridge in this, because in my opinion, they're a bit like two sides of the same coin. So executives are representatives of tradition and order. They utilize their understanding of what is right, wrong, and socially acceptable to bring families and communities together. So tradition and order, I think, really um, hit home with Umbridge. She absolutely refuses to believe that Voldemort is back because that would totally disrupt order. Um, and she puts complete trust in the ministry and fails to question things, kind of to just like believes in the ministry and the tradition that has been established and doesn't think that anything could um, go against its power. Um, the demand for such leadership in is high in democratic societies and forming no less than 11% of the population, it's no wonder that many of America's presidents have been executives. Strong believers in the rule of law and authority that must be earned, executive personalities lead by example, demonstrating dedication and purposeful honesty, and an utter rejection of laziness and cheating, especially in work. If anyone declares hard manual work to be an excellent way to build character, it is executives. So I think this is interesting because everything I just said kind of sounds like good personality traits, right? Like believes in hard work, leads by example, um, kind of like a strong ruler. And those are all good traits, but with Umbridge, we can see the bad side to it because I think those all describe her pretty well too. Um, like it makes sense that government leaders should strongly believe in law and earning your authority and hard work. Um, but what JK has done with Umbridge, which makes her such an interesting character, is that she takes these classic qualities of leaders and she kind of takes them too far or flips them on their head a little bit. So Umbridge believes in law so much that she fails to see its flaws. Like how she doesn't see the flaw in the law that like Harry broke the law because he was protecting himself and his cousin from Dementor. She just sees it as no, he broke the law. So he should go to Azkaban. And she strongly believes in earned authority. And because of that, she refuses to believe the word of a 15-year-old sounding the alarm. And that kind of comes with, like, her teaching style. She doesn't care what kids think. She doesn't think they have anything meaningful to say. Because in her eyes, they haven't earned the authority to, like, have these kinds of opinions. So executives are aware of their surroundings and live in a world of clear, verifiable facts. The surety of their knowledge means that even against heavy resistance, they stick to their principles and push an unclouded vision of what is and is not acceptable. Their opinions aren't just empty talk either. As executives are more than willing to dive into the most challenging projects, improving action plans, and sorting details along the way, making even the most complicated tasks seem, e seem easy and approachable. So this kind of like surety of knowledge, I think is another thing that would be a good trait if Umbridge believed the truth. But since she's so sure in her knowledge, which is false and doesn't believe that Voldemort is back, um, we see it as a bad thing that she's like that stubborn. But like if she believed the right thing, then it'd be great that she was like this sure in her knowledge and wouldn't back down. She also puts her beliefs into action and doesn't just kind of talk the talk like I feel like a lot of politicians do like she 
gets to work with the educational decrees and the inquisitorial squad. And, like, she's not just going to sit there and, like, talk and not do any of these things. Even though they're horrible things and we don't want her to do them, she still does them, which is to her credit. She follows through on her word. (laughs) In defense of Dolores. (laughs) Um, So then, if partners or subordinates jeopardize them through incompetence or laziness, or worse still, dishonesty, they do not hesitate to show their wrath. This can earn them a reputation for inflexibility, but it is not because executives are arbitrarily stubborn, but because they truly believe that these values are what make society work. I mean, incompetence and laziness and dishonesty are all things she kind of accuses Harry of. I must not tell lies, right? She, like, believes in the truth, even though her truth is wrong. And she says that, like, Harry is lazy and incompetent. So, for strengths. um, (laughs) So, dedicated, strong-willed, direct and honest, loyal, reliable, patient, enjoy creating order, and excellent organizers. And I think... The only one I don't see her for her is really patient, but everything else I think is is truly a strength of hers, but we don't see it as such because it, she's not on our side. So like she is loyal. She's just loyal to the ministry and not to Harry and Dumbledore like we'd like her to be. She is like strong-willed and dedicated to what she does. It's just that we don't like what she does. She loves order. That's like her whole thing. <laughs> So, um, and then her weaknesses, inflexible and stubborn, uncomfortable with unconventional situations, judgmental, too focused on social status, difficult to relax, difficulty expressing emotion. All of these I thought were exactly spot on. Um, And I think that just in conclusion, I really, really love this personality type for her. I think it really fits super well. And I also, I'm not going to like get into this too much because we do have a McGonagall episode coming in the future, but I think it also fits McGonagall as well. So there is quite a bit of writing on Pottermore about Umbridge. Some is just like her character. She is like a like a long character backstory write up about her, and then at the end, there's some special writing on J.K. Rowling. Um, Audrey kind of ta- touched on the beginning of this, where it just talks about her family dynamics, about how her father was a wizard and her mother was a muggle, and how the family split up. After her mother and brother left, Dolores never saw them ever again and basically pretended that they didn't exist and that she was a pureblood. Right out of Hogwarts, after she graduated from Hogwarts, she took a job at the Improper Use of Magic office. And J.K. Rowling, or whoever wrote this, is not like specified that it's the writing uh, from J.K. Rowling, but like hits her backstory. So, I don't know. I'm pretty sure it's her, but I could be wrong. It the person who wrote this is very clear to note that at this point even when she was young and had just left hogwarts she was just as judgmental and prejudiced and sadistic then and while working there she took credit for other people's work and as a result of this she was promoted to the head of office by age 30 so like like i said impressive like (laughs) you go girl (laughs) And then at this point, she was like making big sums of money. And so she decided to give her father an allowance and basically force him to retire from his job and remain out of sight. She basically like bribed him to disassociate himself with her. 
And whenever someone would ask her if she was related to the umbrage that used to mop the floors, she would deny it. And in her best, like, girly, giggly voice, she would say that her father was a distinguished member of the Wizengamot. And bad things happened to people who tried to, (laughs) who, like, kept questioning her about it. It's convenient. Coincidence. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure what bad things happen, but... Who knows? <laughs> and so people just kind of stopped asking. Like, they all knew that she was lying, but they just accepted it anyways because they didn't want these bad things to happen to them. And while I was reading this, it just made me really sad thinking about Umbridge, like, fully hating her father this much that she just mm. wanted him to go away, basically. And, like, she never talked about him. She lies about who, who he was. And... I don't know, and, like, the main reason she hated him was for his, like, lack of ambition because he never tried to get a promotion. Like, he was content where he was. I don't know. It seems like it seems like a very drastic version of what could have happened to Percy yeah, and Mr. Weasley. Because they, like, Percy always talked about how he resented Arthur for his lack of ambition and, like, the, pe- the career path he chose at the ministry. And, like, Ron had said a couple times, like, he could get a promotion if he wanted. He just likes it where he is, you know? So, it's just really sad to me how much she, like, really hated her parents. Yeah, it's, I mean, not surprising for her character, but depressing. Yeah, but to just think of her, like, even as a younger child, like, at 19 is when she, like, at 18, 19 is, like, when she started, like, progressing in her job at the ministry, and, like, she held that much hatred then as well. Just, Mm -hmm. wow. So, she'd planned on marrying a superior to her at the Ministry of Magic, but, like, shocker, nobody wanted to marry her because she's unlikable? What? Who would have thought? Who would have thought? And people, I mean, people figured out that she was very unlikable. I don't think it was really a secret, but she was even worse when she had a little bit of sherry in her or a glass of sherry she expressed opinions that even muggle haters would find appalling and shocking which is just crazy for me to think about that even like she was so racist and prejudiced that even like racist and prejudiced people were like whoa too far (laughs) too far that's too much you know yeah like uh, can you imagine like death eaters like reacting to what she said like okay (laughs) you're a little crazy like (laughs) what it's insane and she's described as having a phobia of things that are not quite fully human and there's a quote that says she actively enjoys subjugating and humiliating others which is basically the definition of a sadist so good for her awesome (laughs) and then After she left Hogwarts when she was High Inquisitor there in 1996, she basically just slipped her way back into her old job at the Ministry. Um, Scrimjar kind of had bigger things to worry about, you know, with, like, the rise of Voldemort and such. So she kind of, like, flew under the radar and just got her old job back without any consequences. And, shocker again, she thrived under Thickness's rule, and she led the hunt for the punishment of Muggleborns. Yeah, the whole Which registry. we see. Yeah. Just very 
bigoted. And we also see her create another registry, which is not uh, mentioned in this article, but I think we mentioned it maybe in the Lupin episode that she was one of the people who had the hand in creating the werewolf registry, which was where werewolves would go to sign up to get like benefits and help with their condition. But it was basically a trick because once you're outed as a werewolf, it's very easy. Like, you're seen as a social pariah, and they can also just, like, lock you up if they wanted to, just because you're a werewolf. They never gave the social benefits. Yeah, and I don't think, I think it's even said that, like, nobody ever signed up for it, because they knew that. Everyone saw right through it, but it was a little bait and switch. Yeah, like, just awful. (sighs) And so, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) You know, her sticking to her core values, you know, that's admirable. Not letting anybody change her mind. She knows what she believes. In defense. (laughs) In the writing that JK has at the end of this article, she talks about how Umbridge was actually based on an instructor slash teacher that JK Rowling had had and rather disliked. She's very vague about it because she doesn't want this person to know that Umbridge was based off of them so we don't know if she was like an instructor teacher whatever but anyways there's this quote that I really like from it talking about the person that it's based off of so JK Rowling says what sticks in my mind is her pronounced taste for twee accessories I particularly particularly recall a tiny little plastic bow slide pale lemon in color that she wore on her short curly hair I used to stare at that little slide which would have been appropriate for a girl of three, as though it had some kind of repellent physical growth. She was a stocky woman and not in the first flush of youth, and her tendency to wear frills where I felt frills had no business to be, and to carry oversized handbags, again, as though they had been borrowed from a child's dressing-up box jarred. I felt with a personality that I found the reverse of sweet, innocent, and ingenuous. So... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and J.K. Rowling is very clear in this section to say that J.K. that this person is not ombridge. Like, this person was not sadistic. They did not torture her. She, They, like, were not prejudiced or anything. Like, her and J.K. just didn't, like, vibe is, like, the impression that I got from reading this writing. Um, but Dolores is, was inspired by this character, And so she basically just, like, took the attributes that she hated about this one teacher instructor and, like, very drastically over-exaggerated them for the character that became Umbridge. And then I think this might be the end quote from this writing, but it says, So Dolores, who is one of the characters for whom I feel purest dislike, became an amalgam of traits taken from these and a variety of sources. Her desire to control, to punish, and to inflict pain all in the name of law and order are, I think, every bit as reprehensible as Lord Voldemort's unvarnished espousal of evil. (sighs) Yeah, I agree with her. I think I'm going to talk about that a little bit later with her as a villain, but... She, like, uses this front to be a terrible person. Yeah. It's, and, like, people always, they're always, like, these polls and stuff where it's, like, everybody hated Umbridge even more than Lord Voldemort. And I think it's, I think JK intended her to be kind of this, like, undercover villain almost. Like, obviously Mm. outwardly awful, but, like this kind of, like, everyday evil that could be. And it's, like, 
I think that the audience picking up on that, like, she is the more, like, a real threat. Yeah. Is, like, really... I mean, these books have been out for however many years and people read it closely. But I just, like, I think that it was very, like, astute of us to recognize that she is, like, the more real and imminent evil in our lives. And that's why we are so much... That's why we hate her so much more than Lord Voldemort. Even though Voldemort might be scarier than her, like, in nightmares and everything. But, like, she's not the thing of nightmares. Like, she could... Obviously, like, probably toned down a little bit, but, like, she can represent an evil that we can have in our everyday lives here in the real world, so. Yeah. All right, so now I'm going to talk about uh, Umbridge's relationship with McGonagall, or lack thereof. Um, (laughs) I hinted at this when I was talking about the personality types, but they've always butted heads. Um, We see them together throughout Order of the Phoenix, and they kind of are always clashing, so... I'll just go through those instances. Uh, so when Umbridge ob- observed McGonagall's class, she kept trying to inter- interrupt her, and McGonagall just shut her up. She said, like, how do you expect to know how I teach if you keep interrupting me because I don't usually let people talk when I teach? <laughs> um, McGonagall openly disliked Umbridge, but she did kind of warn Harry that they needed to put up with her. They needed to be... Um, not super outright terrible because she knew that Umbridge was reporting to Fudge. And this is the whole have a have a biscuit Potter incident, the famous one, um, where she just like tells Harry to calm down. <laughs> so that should have been in the movie. Um, <laughs> she also, so during Harry's career advice session, um, Harry tells McGonagall that he wants to be an Auror and Umbridge is sitting there and she says... He's not a good enough wizard and that the ministry would never hire him, basically because he's, like, speaking out about Voldemort. And McGonagall straight up says, like, Umbridge's review of Harry does not mean anything because all of these previous Defense Against the Dark Arts teachers have given him great marks and she would personally teach Harry every night so that he could become an Auror and, like, achieve his dreams. And this is when... Umbridge is interrupting her again and she says may I offer you a cough drop Dolores (laughs) she's so sassy (laughs) I love it I love it so much um and so even though McGonagall we know is like condescending of divination and like kind of rolls her eyes at Trelawney when Umbridge tries to throw Trelawney out she defends her until Dumbledore can come um she also tries to do the same thing for Hagrid and defend Hagrid, but Umbridge and her henchmen, I don't know if Umbridge actually shot a spell, but um, they stunned McGonagall four times, four stunning spells to the chest at once, which, like, um, Madame Pomfrey, I think, says could have killed her. So McGonagall, like, is the, she's, like, the professor that, like, sticks up and kind of leads the charge against Umbridge because Dumbledore kind of stands to the side um, he knows that he can't really interfere, but McGonagall's, like, subverting Umbridge at every chance she can get. Also, at the end of the book, um, uh, when Umbridge is, like, getting chased out of Hogwarts by Peeves, McGonagall kind of just, like, stands by and laughs, and, like, I think Peeves has, like, taken McGonagall's walking stick to, like, oh, yeah. go after Umbridge. Oh, so good. So, like I said earlier... They have the same Myers-Briggs personality type, um, ESTJ, and I think it fits both of them pretty well. I mean, let me know, listeners, if you guys think otherwise, but um, they both have this, like, 
strictness and this respect of tradition. They, like, believe in authority and respect authority, want order, and really dislike, like, laziness and not working hard. However, since they've come on opposite sides of the fight um, and differences in, like, how they choose to adhere to their personality and who they choose to follow, um, we can see one of them, Umbridge, becomes, like, this great villain and then McGonagall is such a hero in the series um, and she's, like, respected so much by readers and Harry and the other Gryffindors alike. And uh, they also both have the cat Patronus. So... Umbridge's Patronus is a cat, um, and it's kind of like, she's obsessed with cats, and, like, likes their cuteness, and she has all those ornamental plates of them. Um, we never see her actually, like, have a pet cat, to my knowledge. But, she, so, like, her Patronus is a cat, like, probably just because it's, I don't know, she really likes them. <laughs> McGonagall's Patronus is actually, it's a cat, but it's actually her own Animagus. So her Patronus has the same markings around the eyes that her Animagus has, which are like mimic the look of her glasses when she's in human form. Um, so it's kind of cool that like, yes, they're the same animal, but like McGonagall's is, Patronus is literally like herself. Yeah, I have two points. One, I, like, don't know if Umbridge is really even capable of taking care and caring of caring about another thing because J.K. Rowling's very clear, or at least, like, I think this is from her, either indirectly or directly from her, like, very clear and saying that, like, she has no empathy and, like, no maternal instinct. Mm -hmm. So I don't even really know if, like, she would be capable of taking care of something like a cat. (laughs) And also, so, like... It's kind of a popular thing in the Harry Potter, like, fandom to be like, oh, what's your Patronus? And then, like, asking people, like, oh, what's your Animagus? And correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think I've ever seen anybody with a different Animagus and Patronus. Like, Wormtails is the same. James's is the same. Yeah. Um, McGonagall's is the same. Yeah. Like, we never see Rita cast Do we know what series Patronus is? I don't know if we know that. Like, I can't think of an instance where we see I think a lot of them we don't know, and so we just assume. Yeah, but, like, I think that's, like, I kind of was, I, like, I, maybe I'm the outlier here, but because of that, I kind of always just assume that your Animagus and your Patronus was the same, just because we've never seen anything to contradict that. It doesn't have to be the same. But the thing about McGonagall that's interesting is, like, her Patronus, like, it's not... Like, I think with, like, James, it's, like, his Animagus is a stag, and Mm -hmm. his Patronus is a stag. But, like, McGonagall's Patronus literally is her Animagus. Like, it's not just a cat. Like, it is her as a cat. Yeah, no, for sure. I just, like, I guess I kind of was just always under the assumption that they were, like, maybe not, like, specifically, like, McGonagall, but that they were always the same animal. And, like, I guess not everybody was under that assumption, and so I am, like... I was just wondering about that. I I always, like, kind of think that, but I think, like, because I always default to that, but I, I'm pretty sure I've read that, like, they're not necessarily the same. the same. They often are. But the other thing is, is, like, your Animagus is set, like, your Animagus is always the same as what it first was, like, when you became an Animagus. But, like, That's true. your Patronus could change. So, like, McGonagall, or let's say, like, 
let's say James became an animagus, um, and when he was in school and was a stag, and maybe his Patronus was a stag at that point, but let's say that, like, for some reason, like, like he survived mm-hmm. Voldemort's attack or something. Like, something big life event happened, and it changed his Patronus. Maybe his Patronus, like, changed to a doe to be, like, lilies. Like, his yeah. animagus wouldn't change. Yeah, that's true. So I think they're not necessarily the same, but they often are. But I think McGonagall's alone with the, like, it has the markings of her patrons. Yeah. Do you think that, like, let's say I become an animagus and, like, I'm a bird or whatever, but then I, like, cast a Patronus and I, like, cast my, like, dog Patronus, but then, like, what if later I, like, change and then my, like, Patronus becomes a bird or whatever my animagus is? Like, do you, like... You know what I'm saying? Like, what if, like, my Patronus knew my, like, knew me better? Like, no, sorry. What if, like, Animagus knew me better than my Patronus and, like, knew who, like, I was going to become? Yeah. Or do you think it's, like, a chicken? Like, this is obviously very hypothetical. Or, like, would it be, like, my Patronus changed to what my Animagus was? Like, that would be kind of cool. Yeah, I don't know. That would be cool. Sorry. Long tangent. Anyway, they both have a cat Patronus. (laughs) Um, so while they do have these kind of, like, these similarities, like, with their personality type and the cat Patronus, like, not, not totally surface level things, like, the personality type certainly isn't surface level, um, they represent kind of two totally opposite teachers. I think that, like, McGonagall is one of the best teachers that you could have. Um, she's strict and, like, she expects a lot out of her students, but she truly cares about them. And she has this maternal instinct for them. Like she really, truly cares about Harry, um, and wants the best for her students. Like she says that she'll support them in their goals. Like she'll, she says that she'll train Harry every day. She knows she doesn't need to do that. Like, cause he would make a capable or, but she like is willing to go the, the extra mile for them. And she's loyal to Dumbledore as an authority, and, like, I think he reinforces those values. On the other hand, Umbridge, while she's also strict and, like, this no-nonsense, doesn't-put-up-with-bullshit kind of professor, her loyalty to the ministry and her prejudice um, really make her different than McGonagall. And I think her prejudice is the big thing. Like, she is not only prejudiced towards like non-humans or towards muggle-borns but also she's prejudiced in the fact that like she's like prejudiced towards kids she like respects authority so much that she has no respect for anyone that doesn't have authority um so like she disrespects students she doesn't trust them she doesn't care what they want to do with their life she doesn't let them do magic in class like it's um they end up really just on total opposite sides of the spectrum and I think it's interesting to compare them and see that like JK gave them these kind of like these core similarities but then took them in totally different ways I mean it's also interesting I'm thinking about this now I hadn't realized this before but like they both came from a family where it was um a wizard parent or a magical parent and a muggle parent Mm -hmm. um and, like, the way that they turned out so differently. And, like, how they're used throughout book five as kind of, like, foils to each other. And it, I think it's really interesting and really well written. Yep. So, before I move on and start talking about this next section, 
Um, it's going to be about what happened or the possibility of what could have happened to Umbridge when she was taken into the forest by the centaurs. Um, I'm just going to put a little warning out there. We are going to be discussing some themes of like rape and sexual assault. And um, so if you don't feel comfortable listening to that, by all means, skip ahead. Um, the section is probably pretty short. Um, but yeah, feel do whatever you want to make you feel comfortable and whatever you think is best for you. No judgment. So, um, this, I'm going to be talking, like I said earlier, a little bit about what possibly happened to Umbridge when she was taken it, um, when she was in the forest and taken by the centaurs. So I'm just going to start out by reading this quote describing kind of what her, like what she looks like when she came back because a lot of this is used in the basis of the speculation of what people think might have happened to her. So the quote is, Dumbledore had strode alone into the forest to rescue her from the centaurs. How he had done it, how he had managed, how he had emerged from the trees supporting Professor Umbridge without so much as a scratch on him, nobody knew. And Umbridge was certainly not telling. Since she had returned to the castle, she had not, as far as any of them knew, uttered a single word. Nobody really knew what was wrong with her either. Her unusually, her usually neat mousy hair was very tidy and there were still bits of twigs and leaves in it, but otherwise she seemed quite unscathed. So this, the last couple, the last sentence or so of that is the basis of a lot of the speculation. She was obviously very traumatized and very shaken by what happened to her in the forest. But as far as we can tell, there were no outward like wounds, like there were no scratches, no bruises, no broken bones. Like, um, I, I mean, this is Harry, obviously he says that nobody really knew what was wrong with her. And it goes hand in hand with the mythology surrounding centaurs. So in Greek mythology, there are numerous myths and stories about centaurs violating women in Greek mythology. One of these stories refers to the centaur Nessus, who tried to rape Hercules' Hercules's wife, Daenerya. Daenerya. I think it's Daenerya. Daenerya. Um. Anyways. Um, she, the uh, centaurs tried to rape her. However, this woman not only managed to defend herself, but she also ended up killing the centaur in the altercation. So it's kind of a theme amongst mythology that centaurs are inclined or do have raped or sexually assaulted women in the past. So there is a prevailing theory that when Umbridge was taken away by the centaur, she was raped assaulted and that's why she was so traumatized when she came back but seemingly had no outward appearing wounds on her body um so I don't know if this is kind of a newer theory but I don't really remember reading about it um until like two or three years ago um so I don't know I think it's a very interesting one like a very um if, if this is, in fact, true, if this is what J.K. Rowling intended, it's a very, like, subtle hint to it because, yeah. I mean, it, I could, I probably read that, like, ten plus times before, like, reading that theory and had no idea, like, I mean, I guess I never really thought about what had happened before yeah. either, but two pe- um, there are, like, kind of two problems that people have with this theory, and one, I, I mean, I really don't agree with either of them, but the first one is that... People think that Hermione might have led Umbridge into this situation knowing what was going to happen. So people are saying that Hermione basically um, like baited Umbridge into getting raped, which I don't really think is true. I, I don't either. 
I think, like, first of all, that's so out of character for Hermione and, like, awful to think that somebody would do that, let alone, like, Hermione, yeah. you know? And, like, so she's leading them through the forest and, like, her motives are kind of unclear. Like, she's semi-leading them towards Grop, but also, like, she's being very loud so that, and Harry's like, the centaurs are going to come if you're being so loud. And she's like, I know. Yeah, well, I don't think she's, like... Yeah, I think she thinks that she might be attracting the centaurs, but, like, I don't think it's fair to say that she was, like, trying to get Umbridge raped. Like, yeah, I think that's an exaggeration, and I don't think it... I don't know. Yeah, I feel like she was definitely trying to maybe use the centaurs to, like, attack Umbridge so they could get away. Yeah, like a distraction but, like, or something. Yeah. Or, like, she like, knows definitely... that, like... Like, they... Although the centaurs are, like generally hostile like they have been like helped by the centaurs before you know like the centaurs have yeah. saved Harry before and Umbridge obviously does not like centaurs like she's very outwardly like right. against um half breeds as she calls them and calls them that to their faces yeah why she thinks that's a good idea I don't know um so yeah, like I definitely like the fl- the plan was definitely like on the fly, kind of quick thinking by Hermione. So like her motives, like I said, are like kind of unclear from what I remember at least. So I feel like it's unfair to say that Hermione did this on purpose, knowing what could possibly happen to Umbridge. And then kind of the other criticism is that um, people don't like that J.K. Rowling would even include a pos like possibly hinting to this happening. Um, to be what happened to Umbridge in the forest. And, like, for my kind of, like, reading in between the lines and seeing the criticism about this, people kind of are saying that, like, J.K. Rowling had set it up in a way to be, like, this is what Umbridge deserves. Like, this is what she gets for her, like, prejudice and hatred, especially towards half-breeds. So it's, like, her getting her comeuppance kind of thing. Mm. And I think that's a whole lot of speculation. Like, a whole lot of people putting words into J.K. Rowling's mouth that she has never said. So, like, I also have a problem with that criticism. And, like, I don't think that you can really like okay never mind I think you can but I think there's like there's a fine line between an author or a writer including a scene such as this one that's not even on like that we even see happen between like that being like important to the story and being good at like starting a dialogue about these things and like being used as like a trope right and being used as like a convenient plot thing to happen and I don't think that JK Rowling goes too far across the line by any means because like I said we don't even see it happen we're not even sure that this is what happened like it never really comes back again as a consequence you know so like it's obviously not used for like a plot like a character arc or storyline you know right and I think like like, we've both read this book however many times and never picked up on it. Um, I mean, maybe if you have this knowledge of mythology, you would have picked up on it. Certainly people did. But I think that... I think it was done correctly by JK, if this is what she was intending. By She's not, like, kind of trapping or forcing the reader into reading this scene, right? We don't read the scene. We don't see it in the movie of it actually happening. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think a lot of the times when rape and sexual assault and stuff like and even just violence in general a lot of the times is used in movies and books it's for like that shock factor and it's like glorified and stuff and that really bothers me um right like I don't I don't think that we should be writing like storylines where like characters get raped just to like 
shock the viewer but or to like make them like something that has become like a trope in like fiction writing especially is like oh it makes them like a damage right like makes like gives them like an, a redemption story or like right. gives them like more depth to their character and like that's such an easy cop out like stop doing that yeah Sorry. and i don't agree with that at all but i think jk does it nicely that like it's this underlying theme, even if, I don't even know if she was intending it, but it's this underlying theme where it's somewhere, it's something that we get, um, these, like, more adult themes. Like, we, on the surface, we see this as, like, children's or YA books, and, like, then you get kind of, like, this more adult theme, and there's these nuances to it, and, like, that's literally why we have this podcast, is that there's so many layers, and, like, the, the no, series itself has layers and just, like, the overall meaning, like, with with the blood status and like straight up prejudice and racism and I think that this is just another kind of like adult theme that she can kind of work in and I think people the whole thing with people saying that like JK wrote this because she believed Umbridge deserved this like I think what I've kind of I don't know what learned but what it's like reinforced for me by like thinking about this theory and reading this theory is like quite the opposite is that Umbridge did not deserve this like no matter how terrible you are like no one deserves this fate or like this to Mm -hmm. happen to them and I think that's the message that I get from JK um and like with like Dumbledore goes in and saves her you know like that kind of thing of like like Umbridge was not like there were not people being like, ah, ha, ha, like, guess what happened to Umbridge with the centaurs? You know, like, the message I got was, like, no matter how bad she was, like, no one deserved this. And I think that's the kind of dialogue that I think is good to be created around it. It's like, because things like this do happen. I mean, like, you know? Yeah. It's a it's real world thing. But... And it's unfortunate. But I think it's good that it's creating this kind of dialogue. Um I don't know. I'd like to hear what the listeners um, think, uh, what your opinions are on it. If you've, like, heard of this theory, um, and, like, if you're comfortable just, like, reaching out and telling us what, like, what you think about it. Yeah, also, like, you can personally message us if you don't feel like putting that on the internet um whatever makes you feel comfortable and then just like kind of close out like this doesn't really have anything to do with what I was just talking about but like talking about themes and like the greater meanings of parts of the Harry Potter series I think that Umbridge overall kind of stands and like the bad people and like the villains in the story overall stand as kind of this theme showing us that like prejudice and hatred are very um, unnecessary, very kind of, like, silly things, um, because, like, when you, when you see in the story, it's like, oh, this magical witch hate doesn't like these centaurs because they're only half human. It seems very, like, ludicrous and, like, easy to read about Mm. on a page, but it obviously very, like, clearly mirrors, like, hatred and prejudice in our own lives, and so it kind of, like, gives us this perspective of, like, well, I guess, like, hatred of people for no reason is, like, silly in itself you know and it teaches us to be accepted accepting of all people and I do believe there have been research studies done that like children who read Harry Potter when they're young are more loving and accepting of people than children who do not read Harry Potter yeah so yeah I just think it um is an interesting theory to think about and to talk about and obviously opening up a dialogue about that is always a good thing I think you know like recognizing that 
it's a thing and that it happens and that we shouldn't it should be a taboo subject to talk about right okay well if you're just joining us back from (laughs) if you skipped ahead um we're on to the next section now and that's uh it's going to be about what makes umbridge such a great villain a well-written villain so the inspiration for this is um that stephen king did a review of order of the phoenix um, when it was released and he was asked what the best part of the book was and his response was pretty long but i'm going to read the whole thing because it it really sums it up nicely i don't want to change his words so he said this one's a slam dunk a great fantasy novel can't exist without a great villain and while you know who sure we do lord voldemort is a little too far out of reach in the supernatural ozone to qualify the new defense against the dark arts teacher at hogwarts does just fine in this regard the gentle smiling dolores umbridge with her girlish voice toad-like face and clutching stubby fingers is the greatest make-believe villain to come along since hannibal lecter one needn't be a child to remember the really scary teacher, the one who terrified us so badly that we dreaded the walk to school in the morning, and we turn the pages partly in fervent hopes that she will get her comeuppance, but also in growing fear of what she will get up to next. For surely a teacher capable of banning Harry Potter from playing Quidditch is capable of anything. So, I think <laughs> Stephen King... <laughs> pretty much hits this on the head i mean who can write a better villain than him like he know who knows this better than he does right um like like he said she embodied this fear that we all kind of have that people in power over us will use that power to hurt us um and i think that's a way way more realistic fear than like voldemort i mean certainly like people like voldemort have rose to power in the past but like this is more of an everyday fear that like your boss could be out to get you or your teacher you know like someone with a power over you could with that power they can hurt you um and i think what makes her so great and scary is that she works within the system and uses that system to like hurt you and uses the system that's supposed to be protecting you to um take away your rights or um hurt you in in ways so Voldemort is evil and that's pretty undeniable but like that's his thing is that he's evil and his motives aren't really entirely clear um like he just wants to like live forever and get rid of the Muggleborns but like Umbridge is more cunning and I think she is scarier because like she's always kind of like planning and she's like calculated and Voldemort well in his rise to power I think when he was Tom Riddle early on was very cunning and he had this plan but I think then kind of mostly in the second war he's very like he's pretty predictable you know and -hmm. like that's not as as like unsettling um and his, him and his death eaters are pretty childlike like they have these great speeches and they get mad and act out but umbridge is like she's more of an adult and like she can she knows how to use the power that she has very well it's also super convincing because she hides how terrible she is with her whole front and then that allows her to work her way up through the system through the ministry and then people don't really notice until it's too late and she gets in these places And I think just overall, it's like she really is just real and relevant to us as readers. And it's just so easy to hate her because you can imagine that, right? Like you can, you can kind of imagine like someone in power over you using these things against you. And that's a little bit more tangible, I think, than Voldemort and the Death Eaters. 
So, I don't know. I think Stephen King summed it up pretty well. One of the greatest villains. Yeah, I think so, too. She's just so easily dislikable. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, everyone I mean, agrees not... on disliking her. If you yeah. like her, let us know. I want to know why. <laughs> you give your defense of Dolores Humphrey. Yeah. If you were the author of that MuggleNet article that we read about in defense like, of... I'm Bridge. not going to... I, I want to create a dialogue. I'm not, I'm not bashing <laughs> you for your views. I just want to know why. I bash you. <laughs> just kidding. Um, yeah, I mean, she's just such a great villain. And, like, people always talk about how Order of the Phoenix is, like, one of the least favorite books in the series. <laughs> I think, like, part of it, like, the, like, I feel like a while ago it was, like, oh, my God, Harry's just so, like, I can't handle him. He's so mopey. He's so angsty. Like, reading it is awful. But I feel like lately I've seen the dialogue change to, like, I just literally can't stand Umbridge. I just, like, it makes me so... Yeah, Yeah. I get so angry listening to that. Or, sorry, I listen to my books. (laughs) (laughs) Reading that. Katie doesn't know how to read. (laughs) Yeah, fun fact. Um, Okay, so moving on to the Where Are They Now section... After the war, Umbridge was put on trial for her crimes and cooperation to the Voldemort regime. She was convicted of torture, imprisonment, and the deaths of several people. And these deaths were innocent Muggleborns that she sent to Azkaban and didn't survive being in Azkaban. And, I mean, I assume she's in Azkaban now. Like, it said that she was convicted. Um, so, I assume she's in Azkaban for the rest of her days because we don't really see anything but life sentences for anything. Yeah. And if anybody deserves that life sentence, I think it's Umbridge. <laughs> but, yeah, she's living out her days in Azkaban. Where she belongs. <laughs> All right. So, um, the second to last, kind of last section, um, don't forget to pop about the pop quiz, but (laughs) the book that I recently purchased called Calling All Witches has a page called Seven Times Dolores Umbridge Was the Worst. So I'm going to read those seven times just to really wrap up our defense of Dolores Umbridge. (laughs) So... One, when she tried to get Harry expelled from Hogwarts after he used the Patronus charm to protect himself and Dudley. Two, when she refused to teach the students how to defend themselves or use magic in defense against the dark arts. Three, she forced Harry to write I must not tell lies in detention with a quill that etched it into his skin by writing with his own blood. And then this next one is a movieism because this book is based off of the movies. But four, she used Veritaserum to force students to confess to illicit behavior, such as Cho Chang, who revealed where the Dumbledore's army met. Of course, this is Marietta Edgecombe um, in the books. Five, she called the centaurs filthy half-breeds. Six, she gave Filch permission to use torture. And seven, when she returned to the ministry, she put Muggleborns on trial and sent them to Azkaban, saying that they had stolen their wands from, quote, real witches and wizards. So the the um, terribleness that is Dolores Umbridge does not end in Order of the Phoenix. <laughs> no, definitely not. Side note, so, like, her teaching Order of the Phoenix is all, like, the theory of this, like, the theory of spells are enough. Like, then you'll be able to know how to use them when you need to. Like, 
But she says you'll never need to use them, too. Yeah, like, that is such flawed logic. Like, if I took a math class and they're like, here's theoretically how to solve the problem, but I never practice how to solve a problem, like, I would not know how to solve that math problem. <laughs> yep. Like, I'm sorry. <laughs> All right. So then um, in this cocktail book that I have, <laughs> the Dolores Umbridge book, book, drink, is <laughs> called Educational Degree Number 43. And it is a pink gin. It says, you can just imagine Umbridge sipping daintily at one of these whilst watching Harry write his lines. Traditionally known as a pink gin, this is a drink with plenty of history. Um, So it's in a martini glass, and it's two parts gin with a dash of Angostura bitters, a lime wedge, and ice. And it is pink. Flick it. Can you see it? Ooh, cute. It's like a light pink. Yeah. Like Umbridge at the beginning of the movie. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, my name is Larry, and I'm a Slytherin. My name is Justin, and I'm a Slytherin. And together we host the Here's Johnny podcast, where we take a look at horror movies, TV shows... Oh, and games. We also have had amazing guests on the show that are directors, producers... And don't forget writers, Twitch streamers, and other podcasters. Yeah, and you can also check out our show every Monday. Just search Here's Johnny Podcast in your podcast app of choice. And you can always follow us on Twitter at Here's Johnny Cast. We are sure you will find an episode you will love. Maybe just like Ollivander's wands, an episode will pick you. Okay, time for our pop quiz. Oh, crap. I wasn't thinking about my answer during the <laughs> episode. <laughs> Good thing I don't answer first. Who is your favorite Harry Potter villain? And this can be favorite as in, like, you like them the most, they're the most evil. You love to hate whatever. them the most. Yeah, whatever. Interpret it as you will. I think that mine is Bellatrix. Because mm. I... I mean, I think part of that is is because of the movies. I think Helena Bonham Carter is phenomenal. Um, but also the character, uh, like, just her character in the books as well. Um, she's, like, I like that Voldemort's, like, right-hand man is a woman, you know? Yeah. And, I mean, she's just so heartless that it's really convincing. I don't know, and I think... I just I I think she's entertaining as a villain. I mean, obviously she's a terrible person, but I think she's very entertaining. And um, I don't know, Voldemort. I never really like. I mean, obviously I didn't like him, but I, I was never super convinced by him. But I feel like Bellatrix is like really convincing in like her just ruthlessness, um, and uh, she infuriates me less than Umbridge does. I think. Yeah, I think so too. Um, so in that short little bit that you talked, I think that I've come to the conclusion that my favorite villain is probably Peter Pettigrew. Mm. I think that he's, like, um, he's a person that, like, subverts expectations really well. Yeah. Um, I think that it's very intriguing to, like, have him be in Gryffindor. And, like, his storyline is just a very interesting, like, the scene where he, like, the hand turns on him and, like, kills him because he helped right. Harry is just, like, so packed and, like, loaded with, like, meaning and understanding, you know? Like, there's just so much going on in that one scene. I just think he's very, like, obviously I hate him. <laughs> obviously he's, like, really annoying. But I just think that his whole, like, character arc, even though, like, he doesn't grow as a person, like, 
the trajectory of his character and like where his character is is very interesting yeah. like how he's the one that like is responsible for like bringing Voldemort back yeah. when like no other oh I was like listening to something it was probably a YouTube video because that's all I do with my life right now um but it was talking about how like the one of the reasons that Peter Pettigrew was the one to help Voldemort back is because he was like a Gryffindor mm-hmm. and all the other followers were Slytherins and so like they like if if Peter Pettigrew wasn't a Gryffindor, if he didn't have a Gryffindor follower, like, nobody would have really tried to help right. bring him back to life. Right. Which I think is, like, really interesting to think about. I just think he's, like, a loaded character, you know? He definitely is. Okay, so uh, go subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. Our episodes are now back to being every other week. Um, so look out for us every other Tuesday. You can also leave us a review... It always makes our day to, to hear from you guys. Yep. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram as Wizard Studies Podcast and Twitter as Wizard Studies. You can also email us at wizardstudies at gmail.com. Send us any um, suggestions you have for episodes, any pop quiz questions, and don't forget to send us your questions that you have for us to answer for our episode in October. I'm getting really excited for that. As always, thank you so much for listening, and remember, just do your best, we'll do the rest. And learn until our brains all rot.